Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. And welcome to another Thursday night of political talk. We are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman. See more at BeckermanPR.com. And just want to start off with the unfortunately obvious somber note. It's now been one week, and it was, I guess, about 10 p.m. last Thursday night, Israel time. So that's more than one week at this point, where the three teenagers, A.L. Yifrach, Gilad Shar and Naftali Frankel, ages 19, 16, 16, and they were kidnapped, kidnapped, hostage, whatever you want to call it. It's uh, fate unknown at this point and absolute tragedy for their families and tremendous tragedy for Claudius Hall. And we all feel it. We all feel it consistently. There's no question about it. It, it weighs on us and it weighs on the political world as well. And fortunately, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of those in the political world, a lot of elected officials, many have come forward to really talk about how heinous and horrible it is to kidnap teenagers. Teenagers have nothing to do with any conflict whatsoever. Just students happen to be at the wrong place in the wrong time. Maybe you want to say at the right place at the wrong time. Whatever, whatever it is, but just, Absolutely tragic, and our hearts go out every day, every moment we're thinking about them and trying to hope that they return to their families. This week, on this Sunday, I'll announce this a couple times, June 22nd, 11 a.m. at the Israeli Consulate, 800 Second Avenue, that's Second Avenue, the corner of 42nd Street, there's going to be an NCSY rally. And this is about teens helping other teens. As I mentioned, these three are teenagers, and uh, they are really – it's a tragedy for their families and other teens are coming together through NCSY, through the auspices of NCSY, hoping for hundreds of people to come. And many other teen and teenage age organizations from around the tri-state area will be coming to the Israeli consulate this Sunday, June 22nd, 11 a.m. Try and be there if you can. And, uh, you know, let's just get back to the political world. We got to talk about the show. We got to talk about the things we're going to talk about because I know that you all you know, listen in for, for a purpose, and that's to hear about politics, to hear what's going on in the political world. And, you know, last week we, we kind of set the whole show aside for this, for that huge shocker that was the loss, the primary loss of Eric Cantor, the majority leader at this point now, uh, soon to be former majority leader of the House of Representatives. And Cantor, his replacement, Kevin McCarthy of California, was just elected today, this afternoon, by the Republican conference. It was actually thought that that was going to be a very divisive election. It turned out not to be, at least it seemed seemingly so. And there was a, an a election for majority whip as well, and Representative Scalise from Louisiana was elected. So all that fracturing, all that backbiting, all that intra-civil war within the Republican Party that everybody was kind of saying, oh, it's definitely going to happen. There's going to be divisive elections. You know, it's possible behind closed doors that that's the way it was. And if you want to read into, if you want to read into what happened last week as it being a phenomenon of the Tea Party, that's, you know, that's certainly, you would certainly be right to do, to have that. But you can also take the fact that 
you know, there were other dynamics at play. But we'll also see coming up, there are a number of Tea Party versus establishment elections coming up in Republican primaries in the next couple of weeks. There's one in Oklahoma. There's a runoff going on. It's going to be going on in Mississippi, which is a big one. So we shall see, and we're going to keep tabs on that. We have our first guest on the line, Avi Fertig. Avi Fertig is the Republican nominee for the 20th Assembly District in Long Island. And uh, many of you don't necessarily associate the 20th Assembly District with one that is uh, relevant uh, in a big way to the Jewish community. We don't always look at that as being a, a Jewish seat or a potentially Orthodox seat or one that an Orthodox Jew could win. But the 20th Assembly District encompasses the five towns, Oceanside, Long Beach, Atlantic Beach, uh, parts of East Rockaway, Island Park. And uh, it's quite a, it's quite a diverse and interesting district. And Avi Fertig is the Republican nominee. He's not sure who his opponent is going to be on the Democratic side. So Avi, welcome back to Spin Class. Oh, thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So let's get right into it. Avi Fertig, why are you running for assembly? I am running for assembly. Well, is it like Mount Everest because it's there? That's not bad. I, I think you're right. It is there. It's an open seat, right? Harvey Wiesenberg is retiring. He's been there a long time, and people are saying, okay, now's my chance, right? Well, it, it, it's true. It, uh, Harvey's been there for 25 years, which is a very, very long time for an incumbent. Um, but what I'm saying, because it's there, I have really I approach it from two different sides. Of, yes, of course, it's an open seat, and it's a tremendous opportunity, not just for the Republican Party. This seat has been in Democratic hands for probably over 50 years, if not over, um, certainly in that neighborhood, and it's been in Long Beach since uh, Long Beach has been established, I believe. So it's a tremendous opportunity for the Republican Party and for the five towns. This would be a very, very exciting moment in five towns' political history for uh, residents of the five towns to become the assemblymen of this district. Uh, but there's another side of it also. The reason I am, the reason I'm running has a lot to do with Hurricane Sandy. Uh, during the, during the aftermath, which is ongoing of, of the storm. Right, I we're not quite in the aftermath yet for a lot of people. Some people are still in the middle of the, after, of Sandy, experiencing Sandy. There are people who are still, their homes are still not, are still not rebuilt. That, that is 100% true, and that is 100% of, why I feel that we really need somebody who is connected to the establishment government uh, um, government right now. Uh, we, we have fantastic representatives in in place. We have uh, Howard Coppell, we have Ed Mangano, we have Tony Santino, Jim Darcy. Then on the assembly, we have a gentleman named Brian Curran, who's the neighboring assemblyman. He has the neighboring district. These people have done tremendous, tremendous things for the entire area. And Brian Curran, for instance, he's done tremendous things in the five towns. He didn't have to. He gets no credit for it, but he does it because it just needs to be done. There seems, in my mind, there seems to be an opportunity to really complete this circle of, I would say, constituent services for the people of this area. And Sandy is incredibly complex. The, As you said, the aftermath is ongoing. There's no end in sight. There is a tremendous amount of influence that we lack in the state in this particular part of the south, the south shore of Long Island. And with me in the assembly, it will be a hole that's being plugged. And 
it will be very, very good for everybody in this entire district. So, Avi, you mentioned the Long Beach five towns dynamic, and I guess those are the two power centers potentially of the district with Long Beach being larger, but the five towns still being a significant political force within the district. And I guess it's interesting, the Democratic candidates that are vying for the Democratic nomination are, I think it's two at this point, although it's hard to keep track. Yeah, uh, uh, Todd Kaminsky and Anthony Aramo both hail from Long Beach. And there were, mm-hmm. at one point there was a third Long Beach candidate uh, and who was since and there was potentially going to be a five towns Democratic candidate. But you're you are the Republican nominee already without a primary and you are going to be the five towns candidate. Uh, are you going to campaign heavily in Long Beach? You're, to give us a little bit idea about how you plan to win the seat, what's your strategy, and where where you think, why you think it's winnable? Okay. Well, first, I just would love to clarify. Um, when we say I'm the five towns candidate, I'd like to just say that that has the the only the only way that would be true is if you take a look at my address. Yes, I live in Woodmere. However, I don't view this district as the five towns and some outer boroughs. It's not like that at all. Uh, the five towns is a significant part of the, assembly, the 20th Assembly District. However, then you have the entire barrier island of Atlantic Beach, East Atlantic Beach, Long Beach, Lido Beach, and, and uh, Point Lookout. That, that's a very, very wide, uh, very, very large part of the district. And Oceanside is enormous, as well as the areas of Island Park, Bay Park, and East Rockaway. Um, these, it's a it's a very large district, and it's a district that I've spent a lot of time, not just in the five towns, but everywhere. After standing, I'm sure you realize that this entire area was terribly, terribly affected by the storm. And I work with Howard Coppell, Tony Santino. Uh, they they represent areas that are far beyond the five towns. They, as I said, I think I we're having park, some te- park. technical difficulties. And these are areas uh, that I've been in and I'm familiar with. People know me. And they, they're very, very much, in my mind, an important part of this district. It's not just the five towns. Okay, you we lose out of strategy, right? Hello? I think we're, yeah, I think uh, I lost a piece of that, Avi. I think we're ha- we had some technical issues right there. Um, but, uh, I think what you're saying is, you know, it's not really a geography. There's nothing, it's, it's there, it's really about who can deliver for the constituency. But now let's just talk about that for a second because there is this perception out there that only members of the majority conference within their prospective houses, only Republicans right now in the state Senate and only Democrats in the state assembly can deliver for constituents because that's the way Albany works. How do you change that perception? How do you get voters to understand that you can be an effective legislator, even if you're going to be in the minority in the uh, New York state assembly? You see, I love, I love that question because there's so Oh, good. Well, then much, I'm happy that I threw it at you. <laughs> there's so much information that, uh, behind that question that after asking a couple of people, I actually have a really, really solid answer to it. A lot of the major legislation that has been going through the Assembly, then on the way to the Senate, over the last number of years, and I've just discovered this recently because I sat down with a number of Republican assemblymen and I've been asking them these questions. 
uh, the exact same question you asked, actually, uh, they, they were telling me something fascinating. A lot of the major legislation that's been going through the Assembly was actually originating on the minority side, on the Republican side. There was a lot of innovative legislation, like, for instance, the the Education Investment Tax Credit. That's just one of the latest ones. Um, they, the, they are being conceived on the Republican side. However, because there is such a considerable majority of Democrats, what generally tends to happen, and by the way, what you said is true, that the legislation is were to be introduced by a Republican. I mean, I think that this is not, uh, well, it's a large discussion whether or not that's uh, appropriate, but the fact is, is that it needs to be introduced through a Democrat. So what happens very, very often is that a Republican is going to draft legislation, hand it off to a Democrat, and that Democrat will then be able to get it to the floor to a vote. And the dynamic that occurs then is it has to then go to the Senate side. Being that it's a joint effort in virtually every sense, the Republican, the Republican majority, well, it's not really majority, but close to in the Senate is much more inclined to take that piece of legislation and bring it through because it's something that's being done really in a only secret, but a somewhat of a bipartisan way. A lot of a lot of things get done in that respect. And to a certain degree, having the Republicans fingerprints on it, however faint they may be, really does actually wind up helping get legislation through. Okay, so let's talk about some of the big issues. What are the big issues, aside from Sandy, that you see in the district right now? I know one of them is Route 878, which is the evacuation route for the entire area, not just the five towns, but also uh, for uh, the Rockaways, and it's in a total state of disrepair. The New York State, it's a New York State-owned road, and they've done absolutely nothing for years that we've seen with regard to this road, and it's really just incredible inattention from government. It's it's a very tantalizing challenge. I when I work, I started working on the 878 issue back when I was working for Howard Coppell's office, legislator Howard Coppell in Nassau County. I was his director of community affairs, and the issue of the traffic on the 878 was becoming an extremely, extremely visible problem. And we did some research, I, and I didn't know this because I live in the five towns area for a little bit over 11 years. Howard Coppell remembers that there is a large segment of what's supposed to be the contiguous 878, but is not, that was never built. Basically, imagine if, uh, imagine there's a highway that ends at the beginning of your block, and then all the cars that were on the highway drive through your block, and then it picks up at the other side of it, and then that's the rest of the highway. That's exactly what we have here in the five towns. Rockaway Turnpike slash Boulevard was never, ever, ever supposed to be a major commuter artery or an evacuation route. It's it's too low. It floods easily, and it's uh, we have at-grade crossings, so it's not appropriate for speedy uh, commuting. There is a large segment of that highway which does not exist. And I had the plans for it to be dug. They were in an archive somewhere in Nassau County in upstate. I found them, and and this is what needs to be built. It's a very big project, but it was approved back in 1981, so obviously it's going to have to rethink the entire project. They're going to have to do an entire 
environmental impact study, but this is what we're pushing for. We are very, very motivated to get this done. And with me up in the state pushing, I'm going to be working with Senator Scalos, and this is something that could actually happen as long as there's enough pressure and enough of a, an outcry from the area over here. I, I'm sure you know that there's a letter-writing campaign going on right now through Howard's office. No, tell us that? about that. What, tell us about the letter-writing campaign. And, oh. and who's it going to and who's responsible for fixing this? Okay, well, the letter-writing campaign was touched off a few weeks ago when we were informed that the governor was going to allocate about $6.1 million to do a cursory repavement in spots of the uh, of Rockaway Turnpike, which are really almost impassable at this point. And then another 60 plus million dollars was going to be used to fix the roadbed. The roadbed of, of Rockaway Turnpike is crumbling. So there's going to be another $60 million release that's going to take care of that. The only problem is, is that part of the project is slated to begin in 2025. So it's a problem now, not in 11 years. I can't imagine what's going to be in 11 years. So our feeling is that if they're going to wait 11 years just to do that, then they may as well start planning to do the actual extension, which is missing link. So what Legislator Coppell did was he began a very aggressive letter-writing campaign. There's a link on his website, and anybody can go there and they can fill in a form, and a letter will be sent to Governor Cuomo's office demanding that the funding to get this roadway started and built will be released, will be allocated, and planning could begin so we could have something there maybe in 10 years. But either way, we have to wait. Why not go for the prize? So, so far... So, so wait, so let, let me just jump in for there for a second. If, if we're talking about... If you can convince them to do it now, uh, or convince them whatever you're going to convince them, it's going to ha- it's in order for it to happen in 10 years? Is that where, is, is that where we really, is government really that slow and ineffective? Um, well, I, I don't want to blame it on the government. Uh, well, there's a lot that goes into building a roadway. First of all, I'm sure you realize that there's just an absolute nightmare of red tape and regulations and lawsuits and, and all kinds of, all kinds of hoops that, that a project needs to pass through in regard to environmental, environmental matters. I mean, there's just so much regulation. As a matter of fact, this project was supposed to be built in the 1970s, the very early 70s, but what was happening, it was taking so long, and then I believe it was sometime in the mid to late 70s, a tremendous number of environmental regulations were passed, and that blocked the, um, that, that, that blocked the immediate construction, and then they, I believe New York State at the time, by the way, I don't know if you realize this, by the way, New York State owns all the land that this roadway, that's, that's unbuilt roadway, they own it all. If you are on Rockaway Turnpike, uh, you know where that big uh, Toyota dealership used to be? It's a tremendous, it looks like a, a vast, empty wasteland that's owned by the state. The uh, batting cages are owned by the state. Everything behind the warehouses along parallel to Rockaway Turnpike are owned by the state. That was all supposed to be the area where the road was going to be. So, yes, things do take a lot of time, and unfortunately, political realities change uh, over the course of time, which could potentially derail a project like this. But, you know, uh, one of my favorite quotes, and I was happy when I was interviewed by Nasser Herald, 
Uh, and it really is one of my favorite quotes. It's from Harry Truman. It's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. So maybe the road will be completed in 10, 12 years, and maybe none of us will be there. But it'll get done, and it's important to get done. It's something that I feel strongly about, and I know that everybody that I work with feels strongly about it. So it's definitely a worthy project, and as much work as it will take to get this off the ground, I feel that it's, uh, it's certainly worth our time to do. Well, and how is that campaign going? Have people been responsive? Oh, yeah. Um, well, so far we have had, to my knowledge, the last time we were counting, and by we I mean me, we had 2,100, yeah, 2,100. It was like the even number. I'm sure it's not it's so perfect. And probably by now it's, it's gone up several hundred. But we started two weeks ago. So, you know, do the math. It's quite a response. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. And aside from 878, and we're talking to Avi Fertig, Republican candidate for the 20th Assembly District, covering Long Beach, the five towns, Oceanside, East Rockaway, and a couple other areas within Nassau County. Uh, where what are the other big issues? We identified Sandy. We identified 878. We identified the basic constituent service. What is it when you go out there in the field, when you're out there knocking on doors and speaking to people? What is it that people are caring about? What is it that is it the taxes? Is it education? I mean, tell us what what is the pulse of the district? Okay, well, it, it, oddly enough, it's probably not so odd, really. But when you look at a district, and you know how every district, every political entity has many, many. It's made up of many different parts. And those parts, when you say different, really, every area has its own issue. And one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing as I was preparing for my campaign, and now that I'm actually in the campaign, is talking to a lot of different people from each of these different areas to identify what their, quote, issue is. So, uh, you know, one of the – it's very easy on in the five towns for us to maybe not necessarily be completely aware of what's going on in Long Beach. I happen to know a lot of people there, and I know that one of the biggest issues that are going on in Long Beach now – aside from Sandy, which is a whole different conversation, is the fact that the Long Beach uh, Medical Center was closed down by Sandy. Then there were seemed to have been plans to reopen it. A lot of FEMA money went to fixing up portions of it, and then all of a sudden it was closed for good. So now the entire Barrier Island is devoid of a full-time, full-service hospital. And this is a tremendous, tremendous problem. Uh, I was talking to somebody a few months, a few weeks ago, they were explaining to me that when a, I'm sure you realize that there's about 30,000 full-time residents in Long Beach, and that number balloons to about 100,000 during the summer. A lot of people come to that area for their summer vacation. Uh, if God forbid somebody's swimming and they, they, they drown, but they're, they're saved, but they've already, they've, they've, uh, they've, uh, they have water in their lungs, they have seawater in their lungs, it's salt water. I, I, they have about 20 minutes or so to get into a hyperbaric chamber before there's permanent damage or death. When the hospital was there, that was, uh, it was a resource that was, that was necessary, was essential. I'm just giving you one example. There's many different types of traumas that are, that require immediate assistance, but that was just something that struck me because, you know, you talk about the summer, it's an entire beach, you know, the entire, the entire waterfront is over there. 
this is something that's a very realistic issue, and that's it. There's no hospital. So, so the district is gone. still suffering in the aftermath of Sandy, no question about it. That there's just the ramifications of Sandy are, are huge, and it's really what's motivating you and driving you to make to try and make the 20th Assembly District a better place. So, Avi Ferdi, thanks very much for joining us here on Spin Class. Uh, we hope to have you again as the campaign progresses. Okay, thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Okay, this is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, and I'm pleased to welcome, for the first time to our show, the Dean of the New York Congressional Delegation, a Korean War hero, and a real pioneer in New York State politics, but American politics, and truthfully, I could say a leader in the pro-Israel community, uh, Representative Charlie Rangel of the 13th Congressional District. Thank you for that kind introduction. Well, you know, Congressman Rangel, I have to say, uh, and it's not just about the longevity and the seniority. I will have to say that, uh, no question, when you look at American history, there are figures who stick out in American history, and, and you're one of them. And uh, it's a, a real record of accomplishment over all these years and the things that you've done. Um, and I have to say, uh, there's no question that, you know, in Judaism, we have a very important uh, uh, ethic of called the thanking the good, thanking the good, Hakarat Hatov. And we have to have it. And I have to say, one thing struck me from your press conference yesterday. So I just want to kick off with this. You, you, you yesterday, you, you headlined a press conference for the three boys who have been kidnapped. And Representative Rangel said, you don't have to be Jewish to understand what it's like when someone for political reasons snatches and holds your children hostage. I don't care what country you come from, that if you can see and talk with people that will stoop this low to prove a political point, then you can see the credibility they will have on any issue. And I have to say, nobody more than that, Congressman, hit, it on the, hit the nail on the head as you did. The surprising thing is that this is more than just them trying to receive a political advantage in terms of negotiation. This is this, a moral disgrace. And everybody all over the world, it could happen to if this type of behavior is accepted. They should be isolated. If the Palestinians say they're not responsible, show that they're not responsible. Remove themselves from the people that have no, no problems in doing these type of things. And I am really surprised that with all the problems that we have in the world, that are spiritually, this is not a Jewish problem. It's anybody that has a child or wants to get a child or has grandchildren, they can imagine the pain that you must feel. The fact that these kids grow up in a war environment, you know, for the last 20, 30 years is bad enough. But the whole idea of snatching away your child for political gain means that you don't have credibility to sit at the table. It, it, and you couldn't be saying it more correctly. So, Congressman, I know that you know, we could talk for a while about the Arab-Israeli conflict, about Israel and all the things that uh, along those lines. But one thing we should talk about is coming up on Tuesday, there's a pretty important primary going on. And, you know, one thing I will tell you, you know, we don't we don't endorse here, but I will say it's important to vote. I think participation in primaries, especially when they're in June and we're not used to them. 
uh, in New York State. We're not used to a June primary. Uh, it's important that people go out there and make their voices heard because these these primaries affect what goes on in the world. And you see how important it is, especially this week, uh, having some political involvement. So tell us about the primary. Tell us what's uh, what's going on. You have a couple, several opponents uh, in this race, and uh, democracy is uh, is is at its height right now. Well, if people could think of the struggle that is taken for African Americans, minorities, women, uh, people that didn't own land. They've been a struggle to get these voting rights, and so many people just take it for granted. While other countries have 90, 95, 99 percent participation, and regardless of who you vote for, it's a sense of confidence that you are instructing the Congress what your feelings are. And so we don't have a governor running, a president, a mayor, but we do have on June the 24th an opportunity for every congressperson to either be voted for or being voted against. I wouldn't take this, this, this program and ask you to vote for me. What I would do is to ask you to look at the four candidates and, for God's sake, look at my record and to see who you think would better be for your community, for your family, and for your country. And we got two more years of this Democratic administration. I have the support of the Democratic leadership. I've been a fighter for health care, housing, immigration, and certainly a friend of democracy, whether they're in the Middle East or whether they're in our country. And so the worst thing you can do is not to vote at all. The best thing you can do is take a look at the candidates and make a decision as to what you think is best for you in our country. And having this opportunity uh, is, is really something that is moving, and I deeply, deeply appreciate it. So, Congressman, there's no question over time, and you, you've actually been in office uh, longer than I'm around, so, uh, and many of the people out there, um, and it's a credit to, to your history, but that happens occasionally. We know in this country that the voters get uh, the voting demographics of the neighborhood change or of the district change, and also voters tend to tire a little bit of people who have been in office a long time. So, Give us a little sense of the dynamic of what's going on, and now that you you seem to have uh, an opposition that's more formidable than you've had in the past. Well, since the in the forty three years that I've been in office, we've never had a political contest that was based on color, religion, language, or where you were born. We never, never had that, and I don't want that to happen now. We have represented in the Congress a diversity of people. But the problem is that everyone knows that that we have to work together to get something done. I've passed more bills than any member of Congress in the last 10 years, but they weren't just for my congressional district. The empowerment zones, the low-income housing credit, the, the health bill that came out of my committee, all of those things are geared toward the needs of my communities, and communities like this all over. If people just want to see what part is best for them, that's not what America is all about. It's what's best for us. And if we can't work together, we are not the United States. We have to care about each other. We have to work together. We have to make certain that we have 
a, a, an income that allows us to protect the middle class. We have to keep those dreams alive for our kids and our kids' kids. We have to improve education. All of these things are important to our community, but they also are important to our national security. Our kids can't grow up just going to jail. They have to grow up to be able to compete against other nations. You can't do that without education. You can't do it without a decent place, an affordable place to live. You can't do it unless you protect and build, rebuild the infrastructure so that we have jobs. Because dignity is a part of the American way of life. And there's a handful of people, there are a handful of people in the Republican Party that are still fighting the Civil War. But I think the Republican Party are not going to tolerate it for 2016. The president has two more years. I want to be there to make certain that we get this train back on the right track with President Obama. Uh, so, Congressman, I think you said that there are some in the Republican Party that are still fighting the Civil War. Some would say that that Civil War is going on within the Republican Party right now. But we'll, we'll leave that aside for a second. Uh, you're, you founded the Congressional Black Caucus uh, back, it, back in you know, many, many years ago. And you're known as one of the, if not one of the premier uh, politicians in the African-American community, a, a pioneer, really. And... The district itself, though, is no longer primarily uh, African-American, and it is Harlem. It's known as the capital of, of black America, but you know the, the demographics have changed. And not only that, a lot of the local elected officials there have decided to back other candidates in the race, uh, whereas there was, I guess, wall-to-wall support for Charlie Rangel for many years. What, what do you attribute that to? Do you feel betrayed by some of these with some of your colleagues that they haven't come to support you, or is that just politics? No, uh, one of uh, my great uh, labor union uh, friends said, Charlie, everybody loves you, but they love their future better. So a lot of people, there is nobody that left me to endorse anybody else that would not say that I'm the best qualified candidate to go to Washington. Absolutely nobody. They may talk about how long I've been there, but I have a legislative record which proves that experience and seniority still works in the House of Representatives. And so uh, one of the things about this race is nobody is knocking my integrity, my legislative record, my ability to produce, but they are saying for other reasons, which some think are divisive, that uh, someone else is ambitious enough to want to go. This is not unusual, but the type of service that I provided hasn't been for Jews and Gentiles, Catholics and Protestants, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. Uh, My legislation has been not only the strongest legislation to improve the quality of life, but if you look at the countries that I have provided the leadership in, it turns out that it's the Caribbean countries, the Dominican Republic, our own citizens in Puerto Rico, the continent of Africa, and God knows I've been one of Israel's best friends. So in order to make certain that we have a strong country, we have to have strong international ties. All of these ties I didn't do or get involved uh, because I wanted praise. I did it because there was a vacuum of leadership. And I filled it, and I've done well. 
Uh, for those who would want to forget it for their own particular ambitions, hey, that happens politically. But I am so confident. I've just had a two-hour cavalcade uh, ride uh, through uh, parts of my district, and the response was just overwhelming. It was more than political. It was really emotional. People were screaming, thank you so much for what you've done, and keep up the fight for all of us. Well, to me, uh, that's enough reason uh, for my wife and I to stick it out for two years, support the president, try to create somebody that doesn't come from one part of the district to service, but is acceptable to all parts. We've never had anything based on where you were born, and this is a bad time to start it. Okay, so one last question for you. I know I want to be mindful of your time because I know you're hot in the campaign trail, and I appreciate you doing this interview live. Really, uh, it's it's really great for the audience to hear that that what what's going on, the energy that you have. Even I have to say, uh, I, I hope when I'm your age, I have this kind of energy to be out there day after day. And I saw you at the Israel Day Parade, and you were there. You were there front and center, marketing down Fifth Avenue in support of Israel. So let's talk about that for a second because. We used to be able to take support for Israel for granted. I think, uh, you know, throughout New York and, and elsewhere. And there are some who saying that with, who say within the Democratic Party, I guess, or the political left, if you will, that support for Israel isn't what it once was. But yet you continue to be a, a supporter, a strong supporter of Israel. So talk, talk to the audience for a second about how that came about and after all these years, why you are such a steadfast supporter of Israel. You know, with all that the Jewish people have been through, I think that there's grounds of being paranoid that they're losing friends. But the truth of the matter is, I've never seen a day in Congress that people didn't recognize that the Jewish state of Israel has always been our friend, has always been the beacon of democracy. And you don't have to be Jewish to understand that if you had to be in a foxhole on the right side, of an issue that Israel is the beacon that you would want to be with. And if you care about the United States, you have to be there to protect our friends. You can't leave them out there hanging with a promise without enforcing it. So, you know, because of the history of the Jewish people, if they hear someone that say something anti-Semitic, uh, it reminds them of when anti-Semites were able to hurt people. But, you know, it's the same thing with black folks in this country. We have some people that believe that the uh, Union didn't win the war. Uh, they they call themselves Dixiecrats, then they join, they call themselves Tea Party, they, they salute the Confederate flag. But hatred is so connected with ignorance that facts don't change people's mind. And so... Uh, I don't see in the history of the United States any country that's received more love and support than the state of Israel. And it's because uh, uh, you never sent the United States troops to fight any of your battles and because the principles that you fought for are the same principles that America has to protect for ourselves. So uh, I don't think it's a profile in courage to support Israel. If you love America, you don't have much of a choice. Oh, that well, that was very 
uh, eloquent, I have to say, Congressman, and I, I really appreciate. I think everybody in the community really appreciates that. And you know, perhaps it's a little bit of paranoia. Perhaps uh, it's just the we look at the potential for shifting sands uh, around around some of these issues, and it's troubling. And we see some politicians who don't step up to the plate when it comes to something like these uh, three teenagers who were kidnapped. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something that weighs on, uh, on the community very, very much. We look, uh, we always feel that their Jews are vulnerable, uh, throughout, uh, throughout the world. So, uh, you know, I have to thank you very much for that, for having said that. I want to thank you for your service for so many years. And, uh, just one last question, if I can get it in, uh, what do you say to those who feel that, that, at you know, at this point, you should just retire. I mean, I understand you feel another two years, uh, but there are people who are just saying, well, you, you well, know, it's just too I long around. what I would say is a simple question, why? Uh, does uh, old age or age mean that you're less competent? Does it mean that you're more experienced? Uh, does age mean that because I know and I'm supported by the leadership, the United States Senate, the delegation, Democrats in New York, I mean, are they doing this because I'm old or because I'm seasoned and effective? And so I would well think that well anybody said. at this time of our nation's history uh, wouldn't send a kid down there to do a man's job. Okay, well, ab- absolutely no question about it. And uh, Representative Charlie Rangel, the 13th Congressional District's uh, a very important primary coming up on Tuesday, and I have to say, I should remind the audience about Charlie Rangel's biography, which is very wonderfully titled, and I haven't had a bad day since. It references his uh, heroism in the Korean War and his remarkable life, uh, remarkable career after. I think that's one thing I will tell you, and I know from Republican legislators as well, how well-respected and well-liked Representative Rangel is on a, uh, bi- in a bipartisan basis in Washington. So thank you, Representative, for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And if you forget everything else, don't forget June 24th. Absolutely. And everybody should know there are primaries throughout the state. And uh, June 24th, they should make sure to vote. Thank you again. Shalom. Shalom. Uh, this is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. And uh, we're going to cross the river as we do every so often. We're going to talk to Ellie Katz. Hopefully he's on the line. Ellie Katz, former mayor of Teaneck, New Jersey, now a councilman in Teaneck, New Jersey. And every so often, as as you know out there in the audience, we profile some of the suburban communities. We we don't like to only talk about uh, you know just national politics or just New York City politics or just New York State politics. But there's always so much going on in New Jersey out there. Ellie, welcome to Spin Class. Ellie, do we have you? Uh, we're having some technical difficulties there. Ellie Katz, are you with us on the line? Okay, so uh, when we get Ellie back, uh, Avrami, uh, please try and uh, get Ellie back on the line. Uh, we're going to just talk about the fact the June 24th primary. He should be there. Ellie? Here, I'm here. I'm here. Ah, okay. Ellie Katz, thanks for joining us. Hope you got that intro. Uh, former mayor of Teaneck, New Jersey, now city councilman or town councilman, township councilman in Teaneck. Ellie, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, Ellie, let's get right into it. Uh, local elections. I know we're almost into the 
congressional primary elections here in New York. There were just village elections here in New York. Uh, it seems between New York, New Jersey, and other states, there's an election pretty much every week. But you had your local elections last month in TNEC, correct? Yes, May 13th. We May 13th. Are, uh, okay, so while, people, while those and, uh, of you out there were asleep, TNEC was having elections. Say again? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Technical issues. But, Ellie, while, while some people were asleep, TNEC was having elections, and there were competing Correct. slates. There was kind of known as the orthodox slate and the non-orthodox slate, uh, from what I have read. It was a, it was a real mix. Um, we had – everybody ran, I guess, individually, um, as, with the exception of two individuals, which was one individual from the African-American community together with one individual from the orthodox community. Um, and they were touting, you know, unity in one community. Um, but they ran against, um, I guess there were a total of eight of us. Uh, so they were minus two, so six other people. Okay, so give us a profile of the TNEC Council. And, uh, you know, we just suburban politics is, is so interesting out there, and a lot of it doesn't get covered. But the Orthodox community is clearly a significant part of TNEC. And although many people out there probably think the Orthodox are a majority in Teaneck, they are in fact not. You're absolutely correct in, in that statement and that assessment. Uh, you, obviously, you know Teaneck well, um, but you probably are making a generalization because that's that's how, unfortunately, uh, we are perceived. Um, but uh, the reality is that uh, we are a small part of the Teaneck community, a growing part of the Teaneck community, a contributing part of the TNEC community. Uh, we have a, um, our TNEC Volunteer Ambulance Corps, which is the largest all-volunteer ambulance corps in TNEC, um, has a, a, a very healthy amount of, uh, of uh, observant Jews uh, that volunteer their time um, you know, on the town council, on uh, different advisory boards in town, on uh, the sports organizations, you know, they, they play very important roles. We had the makeup of the council currently is the, the mayor is a Muslim, um, and he was, believe it or not, uh, uh, put in or supported uh, by very strongly by the Jewish community. Uh, I was actually his campaign manager. The deputy mayor is an Orthodox, uh, is Orthodox. Uh, and then we have uh, three others, including myself, uh, observant Jews on the council. Okay, so what was the what was the controversy specifically, or controversy? What was the divide in this past election? What was it over? Was it over the, the, uh, was the it identity divide, politics? The divide was or? really the, fo- the the divide was really the following. It was the status quo, which was four incumbents running for four seats. Um, versus non the you know, non incumbents running, and um, one of the tactics that were used to try to gain publicity, and it was a hundred percent publicity stunt, was a lawsuit was filed against um, only a select number of the council members, not all the council members, and surprisingly, uh, three of the three of which were running for re-election as far as the incumbents. So that was that was the controversy, and that obviously that created a lot of a um, uh, lot of uh, people very upset on both sides of the aisle. Um, I mean, as far as the residents concerned, they they shelled out uh, thirty five thousand uh, dollars 
to pay for this publicity stunt. And uh, unfortunately, sadly, it worked. You know, the two, the two individuals that ran and that sued the town are now going to be representing the town. Well, perhaps that was the path uh, to victory for some people. But what was oh, that was the path to victory? And and you know whether you know I'm hopeful that they're going to realize that now they have to govern and they have to represent the entire community, and uh, that we could put this behind us and uh, we can focus on the on the township of Tiac. Right. I was just gonna I was just gonna get to that because you, you know you get it's easy to sit on one type side of the table or outside the tent and be throwing bombs. Uh, you know, yeah. towards the tent, but once you're on the inside, it can be a little bit uh, different. But you're, give us a, a better give us the understanding profile of the inner workings as... and why decisions are made. And now the vocal people that criticize, you know, it, it, it's harder to criticize when you have a better education of, of what's going on. Okay, and now, Ellie, you were the mayor for, for a couple of years, so, yeah. and, you know, there are, there is a feeling, there is, I guess, some ambivalence occasionally within the Orthodox community about having an Orthodox mayor, uh, in, particularly in a place where the majority is not Orthodox, because, you know, sometimes that there are people, uh, who are, you know, can feel that the Orthodox don't always represent them uh, appropriately. They only represent their narrow community. I think they're generally wrong, but that's a, that is a perception out there. So tell us a little bit about that experience and whether that, I guess there, now there is not an Orthodox mayor anymore. There's a Muslim mayor. Uh, is there a reticence on the part of the, Orth, the Orthodox councilman not to be mayor? So I, I chose not to continue being mayor, not because of what you described, which is an accurate, which is an accurate description, by the way. You know, there are people that, that, I mean, it doesn't matter what, you know, race, religion, or color you are, you know, people feel that this person's not like me and doesn't really represent me. You know, and, and, uh, you know, then if there's people that have this, you know, deep hate towards a certain race, religion, or color, then, then uh, it, it only amplifies the fact that now, oh, and now he's the mayor or she's the mayor or whatever it is. So, but but what's unique about um, my governing, and and I'm I'm the longest I've been on the council the longest from all the council members that I've been on 16 years, um, and um, I work very hard, n- not just to say that I represent everybody in in Teaneck, but to show that I represent everybody in Teaneck. I mean, you know, when I when I talk about the Muslim community, I mentioned that I was the campaign manager for the for the current mayor. I mean, it was the Muslim community that hosted for me one of my campaign kickoff parties. It was the Muslim community that hosted for me one of my victory parties. It was the Muslim community that welcomed me into the mosque. I mean, so much so the mayor told me that they they welcomed me more than you know than they welcome him. <laughs> so, wow. so I, I, I do it. I do it not so, just in like words, but in action. Right. Uh, and it was reflected in the results, the results of the elections. I had a, I had a, a broad support from the entire town. And, and uh, you know, I worked uh, very hard to make sure that all of our residents are kept in, uh, with, in, in, the, in the mix there. You know, I educate them. I send out a monthly email blast of what's going on in Teaneck. Uh, and I always try to grow my list so that uh, as many people as possible, as many Teaneck residents as possible can can know what's going on. 
Right. Well, there's no question. Constituent involvement is is really important. And what's going on in the district? We we certainly learned that from last week's primary. But talk to me for a second about the. I want to ask a question regarding the potential for a democratic backlash. So what what do I mean? Uh, several of the councilmen, the Orthodox councilmen who were Democrats, endorsed Governor Christie in his gubernatorial election, and. Yeah. One of them, I think at least one of them was, was one of the losers, uh, on election day, uh, and was, uh, was, was, uh, turned out of office in Teaneck. So just my theory potentially here, or at least I want to throw that, this out, is that there was a backlash against, uh, one of these councilmen for supporting Governor Christie, uh, because the, his, Governor Christie's nemesis is a Teaneck, a hometown Teaneck person, uh, State Senator Loretta Weinberg. Any, any any accuracy there? So I'll, t- I'll tell you this, and, and I've learned over time, obviously you can't please everybody, and when you do please everybody, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, that, that people make decisions on election day, whether it's even to get out and vote, to who am I going to vote for, based on so many different factors. And, 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 and I mean, some people may not like me because, you know, of, of my business. Some people may not like you because of positions you took. Some people may, may not like you because the snow was pushed in front of your driveway in the last snowstorm by the DPW, and I'm not voting for that character now. So there's so many different factors. You know, obviously it's, it's, it's your job as a, as a candidate to try to minimize those factors, try to maximize the fact that you have broad appeal and explain why you have broad appeal. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what. I'm one of those three can- candidates that, that did support Christie. Teaneck is nonpartisan, as I started saying in the beginning. And being nonpartisan means that, and I'm a Democrat, by the way, and being nonpartisan gives you the luxury, I believe, to support um, whoever you want to support. Uh, and over the years, I've supported Republicans and I've supported Democrats. And the reason I support them is who do I feel is going to help my town? Who is going to help um, with furthering the agenda of tax savings for our residents, services for our residents? And that's, and that's how I choose who to, who to support. And, and I don't look, and I know that's not the popular thing to say for the party people, but I don't look at the party label. I look at the people and the people that are going to help the community. Remember when, when I supported Christie, I supported him before the whole bridge gate, before anything came out. You know, at the time when he was riding high, when he was a, a very, very popular, active governor, uh, when, when basically he, he, he controlled New Jersey and, and, and things were happening because of Christie. You know, was, did he have his enemies? Absolutely. Did, did I like the fact that he was uh, tax-focused and saving taxpayers? Yes, he's put in initiatives that has helped communities like Teaneck be able to save on taxes, whether it be health insurance givebacks or capping of certain increases. I mean, these are factors that I, that I felt resonated amongst the Teaneck residents, and and that is the reason that I did that. That I that I supported Christie. Did I have people not vote for me because of it? Absolutely. 
Well, no question. All politics is local. The local is really what, uh, what I find to be incredibly interesting. You know, we talk about congressional races. We talk about big picture Senate races, presidential races here on the show. But the local is always so fascinating. All the dynamics that go into it. So Ellie Katz, former mayor of Teaneck, New Jersey, currently a township councilman. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. And I hope to have you again soon so we can discuss uh, more of these local dynamics. Anytime. And I really appreciate you having me. Fantastic. Ellie Katz here on Spin Class, and we are sponsored by Beckerman. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, we uh, there is a rally, another rally, but uh, an important rally coming up on Sunday, June 22nd, 11 a.m. at the Israeli Consulate, 800 2nd Avenue on the cross of 42nd and 43rd Street. And I have on the line Yehoshua Cole who is the New York Regional Director for NCSY, or the Regional Director of New York NCSY. Everyone, I say it, he's the one running the rally. Uh, Yoshua, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you so much. It's, uh, I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Okay, so look, there's a lot to talk about in a very, very short time. We're almost out of time. So very, very quickly, what's going to happen? What's this all about? How is your rally different from all other rallies? <laughs> Why is this rally different? Um, the rally is entitled Stand Up for Teens. And really, this was a... This was a teen-focused rally, a teen and young adult-focused rally, and the message that we want to get across is is twofold. Number one is um, these are these are teens that that have been that that have been kidnapped that are being that are being that are being focused upon here, and and these teens, these three teens, these young boys that were kidnapped in Israel, they are three among many teens around the world that have been the focus of kidnappings and abuse um, for political purposes. Um, and and we felt it was important as as educators that we communicate that message to our teens that teens need to stand up and young adults need to stand up on behalf of teens that that teenagehood is not a, is not that teenagers can't be treated in this manner and and that we have to stand up and and say something um, and this was really a teen, and suddenly this was really a teen motivated initiative um, a number of teen organizations teen youth groups around the New York area um, were getting feedback from their teens that they wanted to do something. And um, we were, in a very short amount of time, able to pull together a coalition of um, a number of different youth organizations and campus organizations and colleges um, who've joined together um, to make this statement. And um, um, we, think it's, we think it's an important statement, and, and we will have a number of our teens speaking on behalf of um, their, their peers. Um, and um, it's, this is the cause. I don't think there's any shortage of, of statements that need to be made in this regard. Okay, but it's not only teens that are invited to this rally. No, this right? is this one. We're calling it "Stand Up for Teens." Um, initially, initially, the the the, the initial thought was um, to make it something for teens. But as more organizations wanted to be a part of this, we broadened it to "Standing Up for Teens" on behalf of teens. Um, but it is it, it was driven initially. It was driven originally by teens, and teens will definitely be a, a focus of um, both in speaking and in, and in and in the message. But yes, it's open to adults, to young adults, to old adults, to young at heart adults. Um, absolutely everyone. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Yoshua Cole, for joining us, director of New York NCSY. Sorry for the short amount of time. Thank you so but much for 11 a.m. on Sunday, June the 22nd. Be there to support the three teens, Ayal Yafrach, Gilad Shar, Naftali Frankel. Uh, absolute tragedy for their families and for all Kali Yisrael right now. Please dive in for them. Please keep them in your mind. And uh, we had a number of closing thoughts that I wanted to do with regard to the political, but the truth is uh, going to just end with that. Uh, people should daven for them. People should keep them in mind and think about the fact that, unfortunately, 
children children are being exploited for political purposes. Everybody, uh, you, you heard Charlie Rangel earlier, and he he really put it very eloquently uh, about that. It's it's an absolute tragedy what's going on, and we must speak up. We must have our voices heard about it. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class, another Thursday night in the books. We hope to speak to you again next week, and we'll have more political talk here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Mm-hmm.